You are listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast. Thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. You can always listen to the show live weekdays from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on WDEV AM and FM and streaming at WDEVradio.com. You can text in your thoughts 24-7 at 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast-paced. The money was just burning a hole in Bill Belichick's pocket. He had to spend it, and as fast as possible. Opinionated. Of all the stopgap quarterbacks, Cam Newton was the best choice for the Patriots. Kudos to them getting it right. To the point. Sox will be better. They're still finishing in fourth. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome in. Brady Farkas show on a Friday right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We go up until 6 o'clock here on the live version, so a short live show. We bring you Red Sox baseball tonight from Camden Yards. Sox and Orioles opening up a new series. Sox swept the O's the last time they were at Camden Yards, April uh, 8th, 10th, and 11th. And that was really, you know, that was part of the Sox nine-game win streak. So Red Sox look to stay strong today. It does look like they'll avoid John Means in this series, who just threw the no-hitter So uh, against Seattle. So certainly uh, optimism here for the Sox going into this weekend four-game set. So uh, again, live until 6. We will have a digital show, though, available for you as well after the fact. So in about 15 minutes, we'll be joined by Joe McDonald of the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. He'll be part of our Friday Diamond discussion. He covers the Woo Sox, the Reds' new, or the Red Sox rather new AAA affiliate. So it's no longer the Paw Sox; it is now the Woo Sox. And Joe McDonald covers them, so he'll be with us at 5:45. And then on the digital side, again, very full show. A lot of talk on the Patriots, but also Orioles broadcaster on the radio side, Kevin Brown, will stop by as well. Well, we are here live. You can always get in on the Napa text line, 802-585-3026. That's your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. So, hey, we don't have a long time here live. Let's get right to it. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts in the Brady Farkas show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center. With locations in Enosburg, Derby, Swanton, Middlesex, and St. Albans, and online at sticksandstuff.com. So, uh, we start the show on a very serious note. Today, about 10 o'clock in the morning, UVM Athletic Director Jeff Shulman put out a statement on the recent allegations of sexual misconduct on campus and the growing drumbeat of how it's a very big problem across all of campus. In the statement, Shulman didn't mention this issue as it specifically relates to the athletic department, but rather he spoke as a generalization of the campus-wide allegations. I'm going to read you part of that statement in full. Over the past week, there have been many important conversations and much self-reflection among a highly motivated group of UVM student-athletes, coaches, staff, and administrators who stand in solidarity with survivors of sexual violence. We are committed to ensuring a UVM athletics community in which all feel safe, valued, respected, and that is free of sexual misconduct in any form. Each of us has an important role to play in promoting societal shift and dismantling the systems and structures that can lead to sexual assault. UVM athletics is committed to being a leader in this work on campus and beyond. That was 
a huge portion of the statement from Athletic Director Jeff Shulman, read word for word. I think UVM Athletics really has dropped the ball with this statement on a few different levels. First off, again, this is only part of the statement, but it is the part of the statement they highlighted and put on social media. There is actually more to the statement, which you could only get by clicking online or going to uvmathletics.com. If Jeff Shulman or the administration thought that the entire statement, all of the words in the statement, if they thought that that all was important, then we needed to be able to see those on social media because I bet 85% of people only saw what I just read because that's what was highlighted on social media. So right off the bat, UVM is only putting out, you know, 60% of what they apparently want you to know. From a PR standpoint, that doesn't just seem like the best practice. They wrote a long statement. They clearly think that every word in that statement is valuable. But then they only put out about 50-60% of it on social media. Most people are only going to see what I just read to you. And that 50-60% just simply falls way too short. It falls way too short. There have been, quote, many important conversations and self-reflection. People don't need the self-reflection of UVM or UVM athletics. What people need to know is that there will be an investigation into what is being alleged, not only against the athletic department, but against the entire campus-wide community. There needs to be an investigation into the entire school and all people in leadership positions at the school. People don't want or need to hear about your self-reflection. They want and need to know the investigation is going on so that they feel comfortable and so that they feel like it's safe to send their kids to school there. And from a fan perspective, athletically, they want to know that the program that they root for, they don't feel dirty rooting for them. There needs to be an investigation, not self-reflection. Okay, UVM needs to be thinking of ways proactively to, as I said the other day, come up with a curriculum. This is, again, this is, my idea was for athletes, but come up with a student-athlete curriculum, an actual course to help educate on relationships, sexual violence, sexual assault, etc. So they need to be proactive thinking about moving forward. But as for what's already happened, I don't need self-reflection. I need an investigation. I need an investigation and everybody needs an investigation because we need to know who went, what went on, who knew what, how many people are impacted, and was anybody complicit in covering up things or making it difficult for survivors to get their story out and get their message across and get any help. The athletic department statement also fell short in the fact that it didn't address any of the claims specifically against the athletic department. It made no note that the athletic department has been named multiple times in these allegations, and it needed to mention that. There have been several claims of rape against former UVM men's basketball star Anthony Lamb, an allegation of gang rape against the men's basketball team, and an allegation that I saw of sexual assault against a men's hockey player a couple of years ago. I understand that these are allegations right now. 
I don't expect the statement to name Anthony Lamb. I don't expect the statement to name names of anybody, any former student-athlete that has been accused. I do not expect that. What I did expect was that when your athletic department or members of your athletic department, better said, have been named as predators, I would expect that you feel the responsibility to at least address those claims of sexual misconduct among members of your department. I said I wanted an investigation, and I do. The athletic department statement would have been much stronger if it said it wanted an investigation as well. Because people need to know if rape and sexual assault have happened under the athletic department's watch. And people need to know if the department has people engaging in predatory behavior or has people who are a part of the athletic department engaging in predatory behavior. And in the case specifically of women swimmer Kendall Ware, who alleged being raped back in 2019, the athletic department needs to know if it has its own people being preyed upon in addition to being predators. So you've got you've got people here in the athletic department who are alleged to be survivors, and you've got people here in the athletic department who are alleged to be predators. The investigation needs to bring all of that to light. The athletic department should be shining on that fact that, hey, we want to get to the bottom of this too. We want to know if we are failing. And there was no mention of that. And that fell very, very short for me. And the investigation that I need to have happen, it needs to be done from an outside person, an independent body, an outside firm. This whole we're taking a deep look at ourselves thing, that doesn't fly. Because if the athletic department has been complicit in covering things up or not providing resources or X, Y, or Z to survivors... We need to hear that from the outside because you can never trust anyone to investigate themselves. And that's not just specific to UVM athletics. That's most cases in life. If you want the truth, if you want honesty and transparency, it can usually only be achieved on the outside. When you ask people to look at their own house, they're not going to uncover everything because they don't want to uncover everything. So this investigation needs to be done by an independent body or an independent firm. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. You know, I also see a lot of people calling for the heads of everyone in the athletic department. I see them calling for them to be fired or for them to resign. I've seen multiple times on social media today the calls for Jeff Shulman to, to resign specifically. You are all entitled to feel that way because of the nature of these allegations. But let's let's just remember this. Step back for a second and remember this. Before any of that can happen, before firings can be issued, before resignations can be called for, there needs to be that investigation. And when the investigation happens and when it concludes, we may very well end up in that exact same place. But only then can we start handing out pink slips. We can't hand out pink slips until the thorough investigation is done so we know exactly who knew what and how prevalent these issues were. And if it's found that the athletic department was complicit in covering up a rape, as is alleged, then again, then we can start handing out pink slips. But Tyreek Hill, Antonio Brown, Deshaun Watson, they all get investigations also. They don't just... They don't just get released. 
here at UVM, we may end up in that same spot where people lose their jobs, but we're not there yet. This investigation needs to happen because we need to know. On an athletic department level, we need to know who knew what and when and how deep did these allegations go of covering up rape. We need to know. From a macro, university-wide scale, we need to get the school to a point where it is safe for people to go there. And where if, God forbid, something did happen, someone feels comfortable enough and that they know that there's people there who have their best interests at heart. Because right now, these allegations would show you that there are not. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. 802-585-3026. That is the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. Again, your locally owned Napa stores. There really is no easy way to transition from that story to this story, but it is Friday. We are getting ready for Red Sox baseball. The Sox are taking on the Orioles tonight again. First pitch is 7.05. Coverage is 6.05. There are a number of future useful Red Sox players right now playing down at AAA, and the minor league season started this week. So there's a lot of names we're following, from a Jeter Downs to a Jaron Duran. We've been following Michael Chavis as well. And the guy who's got the insight on all of those people is our guy Joe McDonald. He covers the Worcester Red Sox, the AAA affiliate of your Boston Red Sox, for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. And he is with us now here on our Friday Diamond Discussion. Thanks to Red Door Jewelers in downtown Randolph, where every visit is a home run. Joe, thanks for being with us, man. How are you? I am fantastic. How's it going? Good. Well, I appreciate you being with us. A lot of people happy minor league baseball opened up this season, more than 600 days since we saw minor league baseball played. But every time we've spoken in the past, you had been covering the Bruins in the NHL. So how's the new gig for you? <laughs> it's going well. It's uh, I'm back to my roots. You know, when I first started my career back at the Providence Journal in Rhode Island, uh, God, it seems like 30 years ago. It is 30 years ago. Um, I was covering the Pawtucket Red Sox, and I covered the Paw Sox for 15 seasons, and uh, so I'm I'm used to minor league baseball. I, I, I love the game of baseball, and uh, you know hockey took me away from it for a little bit, but uh, I'm I'm back on the the baseball beat with the Woo Sox, and as you mentioned, you know covering a lot of these uh, these prospects for the Red Sox, and probably guys that will be in Boston sooner than later. You know, the Woo Sox, it's their first season in Worcester as they move from Pawtucket. What's, what, what, what's the stadium like? What's the vibe? I know they haven't played a game at home yet, but what's it like down there? Yeah, it's great. Uh, you know, and truth be told, when, you know, I'm a Rhode Island guy, you know, born and raised and still live there. And when the, uh, the announcement was made that they were actually moving from Pawtucket and to Worcester, uh, I wrote a column basically saying that I would never step foot in Worcester and mm. I would never go to a Woo Sox game and, and here I am. I'm the beat writer. I'm going to be at every game. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but it, I but I got to tell you, they the organization and in, in the city of Worcester have done an outstanding job getting ready for this season. And the ballpark is, is fantastic. It's a it's built for fun. It really is. It's going to be a great family atmosphere. The Canal District is where the the ballpark is uh, in Worcester. Uh, it's it's up and coming. You know, it's. You know, the ballpark is basically going to be the, the jewel of that area, as Larry Lucchino likes to describe it. But it, it's going to be great. Uh, the construction is still ongoing, and it probably the entire project won't be done until probably about the 4th of July. Uh, that's the goal right now. But it is ready for baseball, and the home, home opener is on Tuesday. 
Uh, so really looking forward to having at least some fans in the ballpark and, and watching the Woo Sox at home. So it's going to be good. And, you know, fans, you know, Red Sox Nation fans from, from up north, you should definitely take the trek down because it's, it's going to be worth it. Well, not only is Tuesday going to be the home opener, it's going to be nice to play somebody other than Buffalo. Because of COVID and travel and all that, the Woo Sox are starting the season with a six-game series against Buffalo. Yeah, that's a, it's interesting how Major League Baseball set up the minor league schedule this season. And obviously with the, the guidelines and the protocols, they tried to limit travel as much as possible. So what that means is they created these six-game schedules. Uh, and so they'll, they'll play six days, and then we'll have every Monday off, and then another six. So, yeah, this is interesting. Uh, you know, normally after three games, it's it's or four games, it's, uh, you know, on to the next opponent. But and the Woo Sox have started 0-3 against the Bisons, and fortunately they have three games left to try to come back 500 from this road trip. Well, Joe McDonough from the Worcester Telegram and Gazette joining us here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. You know, a lot of people are happy to see minor league baseball back from a fan perspective, but how important is it for these players? I mean, some of these players missed an entire year of development, Joe. And we're seeing that in the early going here is that in the first three games, you know, the Woo Sox, <laughs> I almost said Paw Sox, you know, the, the Woo Sox, you know, they're struggling. And for a lot of these top prospects to your point they haven't played in a real game in in almost two years you know some of these some of these kids so uh it's having an effect early on early on i should say but as hitting coach rich gedman told me yesterday you know it's about you know winning those those personal uh battles earlier in the season so for a guy like jaron duran who's 0 for 11 to start his triple a career with five strikeouts uh, you know, he's he's pressing a little bit. So, you know, he just needs to, to keep it simple and, and try to get that first knock. So uh, it is. You can tell it's having it's having an effect on these players in the early going. But, you know, they're, they're pro athletes, they're pro baseball players. You know, once they get into a routine and, and they get some consistent at-bats, this is going to turn around for them. So, uh, but it is, it is a bit strange to see so many players struggling uh, like this in the early going. Is AAA baseball, is minor league baseball, is it more valuable than the alternate site? Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, the alternate sites, it's, it's glorified spring training. Uh, you know, they would play these inter-squad games, and it would start with, you know, maybe eight players on the field. That was it. Uh, and then as these games would progress, you know, you, by the end of it, you, it was like live BP. You would have a pitcher, a catcher, and a hitter, and that was it. Um and then when they played a couple of the scrimmages against the New York Mets alternate site, uh, it was a little better to see a, a different team in a different uniform. But now it's now the development really begins because you're able to to play a real game. You're able to put players in a position to develop, to succeed, uh, and that's what they need at this level. You know, it's not necessarily about wins and losses; it's about development, um, and that's what these players are getting now. And that's that's what this organization, not just the Red Sox organization, but every Major League Baseball team, that's that's what they need from, you know, from these these players at this level. You mentioned Jaron Duran, the speedy outfielder who we saw a lot of in spring training, who can hit for some power. He's off to a slow start. Another guy who struggled last night is Jeter Downs. Um, I don't have Jeter Downs penciled in, you know, as as Red Sox infielder for this season, but. Uh, 
yeah, evidently his timeline seems to be a little bit more aggressive than I was expecting, so it's disappointing to see him struggle at the start. Yeah, he struggled uh, big time last night. Uh, in the first two games of the season, he was playing, uh, he played shortstop, which he seems more comfortable on the left side of the infield than he does on the right side. Uh, but the thing that's interesting is that, you know, you talk to a lot of big league evaluators and, and they see Downs, if he makes it to the big leagues, as a second baseman. Well, he had two errors last night. He probably could have been charged for four errors. Um, he got picked off at uh, first base after being hit by a pitch. So it's, you know, he's struggling in the early going as well. And I just, obviously, I've only seen him in, in real games for, you know, these, these last three. And, but, you know, I, you have to see a lot more from, from this kid before you can even stop to think that he's big league ready because at this point he's, he's certainly not. And, and you can't fault him, you know, just like all these other players. They haven't played in a real game in a long time. But, um, but it was a big difference seeing him on the right side last night opposed to the left side. So there's a lot of development left, obviously, with this kid. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, if he can figure it out. Um, you know, this is his third organization. Um, so, you know, right away that might send up a red flag for a lot of people, especially since he's only 22 years old. Um, but, you know, he, he obviously has the ability. Let's just see if he can put it all together in, in hopes of getting to the big leagues on a consistent basis. You know, Joe, I've said all along I thought the Red Sox would be better than last year. I'm, I'm right on that thus far. But I thought that if they fell out of it, it's going to be because – injuries would hit them and they just don't have a whole lot of depth in the minor leagues like we know about Duran we know about Tanner Houck and we know about Chavis beyond that who is down there that might be able to be up here because that the depth is still what I'm the most worried about yeah they they actually when you, you look at the roster they they have more depth than you would think uh obviously the guys that you mentioned but you know they have you know Connor Wong uh, who came over in the in the Mookie deal right he's uh, in the in the few games that I've seen him play, he's the real deal. You know, he's when he was with the Dodgers, they turned him in. He was an infielder, and they they turned him into a full time catcher. Uh, he doesn't look very big when you see him, but you know he's very athletic. Uh, he's got a very strong, solid arm. Uh, throughout a, a couple base fields already in the series, um, and he just needs to find you know the offense consistently as well. Uh, and then you have a guy like Marcus Wilson. Uh, they they brought him in for depth. In the outfields, uh, they brought in, you know, the, the, not necessarily a prospect, but a guy to add some depth is Chris Herman. Uh, you know, yeah. he's got almost six years of major league service time. Uh, he's the oldest player on the team in, in Worcester. He's 33 years old. He's a catcher, but they brought him in to add some depth to that position and also to kind of tutor these or mentor these, these young guys. Um, Connor Siebold, right now, he's he's on the IL with uh, a little. Uh, elbow inflammation in his in his right throwing arm, uh, but he's a guy that has a lot of upside. Uh, you know, earlier on in, in the all camp, I saw him pitch a, a pitch a few times, and and he, you know he has the ability to to help out in Boston as well. So there's a lot more depth uh, at the AAA level than you would think. And the one thing that you know a lot of people don't know about this season is given the the COVID protocols by Major League Baseball, uh, the only uh, players that you can call up to the big leagues, it has to come from the AAA level. Not hmm. like, you know, in the past during normal times, uh, you know, you could call up a player from any level uh, to the big leagues. But now that player has to be at AAA in order in order to get called up. And 
Uh, we saw that right uh, today. So they, uh, Chavez and, and uh, Jet Bantig are joining the Red Sox in Baltimore uh, on the taxi squad. So, uh, you know, the, the Woo Sox have, have more depth uh, than a lot of people think. And uh, I think as the season progresses and injuries happen, which we all know will occur, uh, you're going to see that depth uh, come to fruition in Boston uh, at different times of season. Well, that's good to hear. And Brandon Workman, old friend, will be back at Worcester soon. So uh, <laughs> that's good to see as well. It was cra- it was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. Yesterday I was, I was sitting in the stands, uh, you know, in, in Trenton, and I looked into the dugout, and I'm like, wow, that guy looks like Brandon Workman, <laughs> right? And it didn't, even, it didn't even dawn on me that, I mean, I knew he was released by the Cubs, but it was almost like out of sight, out of mind, and I didn't think anything of it uh, because with, uh, you know, with the, uh, with the guidelines and the restrictions that the media has, it's not like I can just walk into the clubhouse or I can walk into the dugout and, and see these guys face-to-face. A lot of them I don't know face-to-face yet because I haven't had that opportunity. So when I looked at the dugout, I was like, yeah, wow, that guy looks exactly like Brandon Ward. <laughs> and it was. You know? And I'm like, wow, I guess I've got to work on my reporting skills a little bit. But, yes, he's, he's back in the organization. I'm actually supposed to uh, talk to him and uh, Woosox pitching coach Paul Abbott later on today. So it should be interesting to see. Uh, what they have in store for, for his return to the, the Red Sox organization. Well, very, very cool as we get ready to, to step aside for Red Sox baseball against the O's tonight. Cool to note that last night on this station, you got a shout-out on the broadcast. I think it was Will Fleming who shouted you out, so you got, you know, all of Red Sox Nation heard about Joe McDonald's work. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. That's <laughs> very nice of Will, and, and uh, my phone started, you know, blowing up after Will and, and Lou Maloney. You know, started uh, mention you know some of the, the work that I've been doing back on the baseball beat, <laughs> and I covered Lou when he was yeah. in Pawtucket and playing for the Paw Sox, and so that goes back a, a long time. But uh, it was nice of those guys to to say it, and, and certainly you know two of the best to to call a game in, in this market, not only in this market, but in, in baseball in general. Well, Joe McDonald over at the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, the Woo Sox out to an 0-3 start, but uh, certainly about the development of players as we try to get them back up to Boston here uh, as soon as possible. So, Joe, we appreciate you on this Friday, man, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, sounds good. Thank you. All right, that was Joe McDonald of the Worcester uh, Telegram and Gazette on our Friday Diamond discussion, thanks to Red Door Jewelers in downtown Randolph, where every visit is a home run. We do that every single Friday, giving you a little baseball perspective here. As we are now just uh, you know a couple uh, you know a couple of minutes away from Red Sox pregame, an earlier Red Sox pregame today, even than usual. When the Sox are at home and it's a seven o'clock game, it's seven ten six ten pregame show. Today in Baltimore, it's 7.05 first pitch, 6.05 pregame show. So good stuff there from Joe, by the way, because um, I'm glad to hear the cupboard is not as bare as I have thought it was. Connor Siebold is a guy that certainly can help this team. We've heard Lou Merloni talk pretty extensively about him on social media and on the broadcast as being a guy that can help. And it's weird to think now that – so that trade last year Bloom made was – it was Brandon Workman and it was Heath Embry for Nick Pavetta and Connor Siebold. Well, now Workman is back. So you've got basically Pavetta, Siebold, and Workman for, you know, for Embry. I mean, essentially they gave up Embry for Siebold and Pavetta. I mean, that's a huge net positive there, a win for High and Bloom. And it shows you the volatility of relievers. I mean, Workman last year was a huge and valued commodity at the, uh, you know, at the trade deadline in the shortened season. And now he ends up. You know, just done from the Cubs on the scrap heap, and here he is now back 
with the Boston Red Sox organization. So hopefully he can make a difference in the bullpen at some point this season because, you know, the Sox bullpen has shown some warts. I mean, you know, the Austin Bryce's of the world, and I've never been huge on Matt Andrees, and he wasn't great yesterday, and Adovino has been iffy at times as well, although, you know, I still like that move. But, you know, the more depth you can have in the bullpen is certainly – you know, for the better. So uh, I'm glad to hear the cupboard is not bare. Good to see Chavis a part of the taxi squad. Hopefully you don't need them. The taxi squad is there kind of for COVID issues, et cetera. So it was very fascinating. I did not know what Joe said, that if you're going to call a player up, it has to be from AAA. AA is always seen, you know, there's a lot of guys that go from AA straight to the majors. AA is seen as the best level of minor league baseball. But, you know, here we've got it so that, uh, you've got to go up through AAA. So interesting to see that. Yeah, Joey's right. A lot of people didn't know that. I did not know that. So very, very cool uh, to talk to Joe McDonald. And yeah, he used to cover the Bruins. And we know I had him on a couple of times before, and it was always about the bees. It was never about baseball. And here he is back doing his passion. So that's uh, that's a lot of awesome stuff there from Joe McDonald, the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Okay, that will do it for the live version of the show. So for the live version of the show, I want to thank Joe McDonald for joining us. Um, you can always check out the full show podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton and Lumber. I will be back on Monday. We'll have another short show that day live, but we'll recap the weekend and some interesting comments from Rob Gronkowski on former Pats wide receiver Julian Edelman. But if you feel like continuing on with the conversation, we are going to be moving over to the podcast channel uh, now. So head on over there, Apple Podcasts and Spotify for the full show version of the uh, the podcast. We'll have some fun and uh, we'll continue on. But for the live crew, have a great weekend. I'll see you back on Monday. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com, and always streaming on the free WDEV radio app. Good night, everybody. Hi, this is Evan Hallstrom. I race super late models with the Pro All-Star Series. You can follow me throughout the summer racing up and down the East Coast. I've always loved auto racing. Not only do I drive the car, but I build it with my dad. We're a small family-run team that has a lot of fun. I'm proud of the work that I do with the Governor's Highway Safety Program and the Vermont Highway Safety Alliance. Remember, click it or ticket. Follow me on my Facebook page at Evan Hallstrom Racing and Twitter at EvanHMS1 or my website at EvanHallstromRacing.com. All right, I want to thank everybody for coming on over to the podcast channel here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. So a reminder, we were bumped off the air for Red Sox baseball today, but that's fine. We continue on the conversation. We do this a lot because we have so much to say and we like interacting with you guys. So Joe McDonald was with us in the live version. He covers the Woo Sox, the Red Sox AAA affiliate in Worcester, Mass. And we'll have Kevin Brown, one of the many voices of the Baltimore Orioles, with us here in a little while on the digital version. So continue uh, listening on with us here, and we always appreciate those of you that do. Um, interesting stuff here. I want to move over to the Patriots. Ron Rivera, he's the head coach of the Washington football team. He said yesterday that you don't need a franchise quarterback to win in the NFL. Huh? You look at those other guys that have won Super Bowls in the last 20 years, and you sit there and say, wow, you know, it's really about getting a guy that can manage a game that doesn't make a lot of mistakes, and when he has to, can make a play. You know, other than Tom Brady, for the most part, you really sit there and take a step back and go, that's probably what you're really looking for. So Ron Rivera said you don't need a franchise quarterback. You need a guy who doesn't beat you, who can make a play occasionally. It's a really fascinating discussion, isn't it? Because I think Ron Rivera is right, okay? I've made this point forever. In order to win a Super Bowl in the NFL, you need a Hall of Famer, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, or a cheap quarterback. 
And I've pointed to Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes. They were cheap quarterbacks who won. The Eagles quarterback situation was cheap when they beat the Patriots. And then even Super Bowl losers like Colin Kaepernick and Jared Goff recently, they were cheap quarterbacks as well. So Ron Rivera is right. You don't need a franchise quarterback to win a Super Bowl. Okay, You don't need that. Like Jimmy Garoppolo nearly won a Super Bowl. Baker Mayfield has a chance to win a Super Bowl this year. And I don't think anyone would mistake Mayfield for Tom Brady. Josh Allen is a very good quarterback, but he's still a cheap quarterback at this point. Cheap QB is generally the way to go. It's why the Jets moved off Sam Darnold. Not because Sam Darnold sucks, but because Zach Wilson was going to restart that cheap clock. It's why I've called for the Patriots to draft a quarterback this year and why, while I don't love Mac Jones, the player, I like the methodology of getting the cheap quarterback. The cheap quarterback or the Uber Hall of Famer, that is how you win. As Rivera says, a guy who can simply steer the ship and not screw up, that is okay. But here's the problem with that logic, okay? Finding a good quarterback is really hard. Just look at the Paxton Lynch and Christian Ponder and Josh Rosen graveyards of quarterbacks. When you have one that's good, you can't really move on because the odds are you won't find another one very easily. So when you have a Drew Brees or a Russell Wilson, you have to pay them. When you have Aaron Rodgers or a Kyler Murray or a Dak Prescott or a Josh Allen, you have to pay them. So you lose that advantage of them being cheap. But the guys are still good, and they're valuable to your community and your organization, so you just can't let them go. So for the first few years of a career, you can win with a non-franchise quarterback. You can. Baker Mayfield might win a Super Bowl this year. You can win with him, but then what? When he ages out of that, you're going to need that guy to become a star because if he's the same Baker Mayfield making you know, $40 million as was making seven, well, now you've got a problem. It's why the young quarterback window has to be maximized so much. You need to win when that quarterback is in that rookie contract because it gets exponentially harder to win when you have to pay them. Okay? Again, look at... So Seattle wins with Russell Wilson as a second-year player. They've got a great defense. They were able to go acquire Percy Harvin. Like They were able to go do things that year around Russell Wilson, and they win the Super Bowl. When Wilson gets paid, they haven't been back since. Okay, they haven't been back. They haven't been back to the Super Bowl since Russell Wilson got paid. Aaron Rodgers hasn't won a Super Bowl since he got paid. You need to maximize that window because once you get, you know, if you get close on the rookie contract, you're paying the guy, and the hope is that he'll turn into Mahomes and not Kirk Cousins. That that's the issue. Ron Rivera is right. You can win with a non-franchise quarterback, but you better. Win when they are young because once they get older and expensive, you're going to need them to be stars because that's the only chance you have. Russell Wilson's a star. They haven't won. Aaron Rodgers is a star. They haven't won. They've gotten close, and like that, you need to be that good just to get close. You need to be that good just to get close. Kirk Cousins isn't getting close. Dak Prescott hasn't gotten close. Now, we'll see this year. What he, you know, he's going to make his huge money. We'll see, but... I would say it's going to be very, very hard for him. It's why the pressure, I think, is so on Mac Jones early in this. Like, look at Mac Ryan, Matt Ryan, by the way. He got to a Super Bowl. 
but he got to a Super Bowl while being expensive, but hasn't been close really ever since and was never really close before that. Like it's hard when you have a good quarterback that's expensive. You're you're in purgatory. You need the Hall of Fame superstar to have your chance or you need to be the young cheap quarterback. It's why the pressure I think is so is high on Mac Jones early in his career. I think the Pats have the pressure in the relationship to put a good team around Mac Jones because they know that Mac Jones is ultimately not a superstar. Like if they don't win in these five years, they've got Mac Jones. They're not going to win. Okay, I look at Mac Jones the same way I look at Baker Mayfield. He's good. He has real gifts, but he's certainly limited. Limited athletically. Limited arm strength wise. Baker Mayfield, Mac Jones, they can win, but they've got to win as part of a bigger system. Mayfield's only really cheap for this year. Next year's on a fifth-year option. He's a lot more expensive. And then after that, you know, he's going to be paid $40 million, and that Browns roster is going to deplete around him. And then they're not going to be able to win because he's not going to be able to overcome the to-come roster deficiencies. The Browns are under huge pressure to win now. And the Patriots will be in that position in a couple of years because Mac Jones can win when everything around him is there, when the infrastructure is in place. But after that five years is up of the cheap contract, they're going to be in the Kirk Cousins, Baker Mayfield, no man land. So Ron Rivera is right. The guy who just doesn't screw things up and has a good team around him, he can win. But he's got to win early on because if he remains that guy into the second contract, then you are screwed because then you're going to be wishing he was Patrick Mahomes because it's the only chance that you've got. It's the Brady Farkas Show. Right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com, as we are here in the fully digital version of the show. You know, we started the live show talking about UVM. I'm going to continue to talk a little college sports, but on the actual sports side of things. It is official. University of Hartford, UVM rival. They are dropping down to Division Three. They are leaving Division One. They are leaving the America East, and they want this done no later than 2025. So the Hawks are leaving D1. They're going to D3. It's going to happen within the next few years. This first off does a couple of things. First off, you know what, before what it does, this is an embarrassment. This school just got to the NCAA tournament in men's basketball, and rather than invest in athletics, they're basically cutting it to the bone. Athletics is absolutely a driver for your university. There are so many people that have only ever heard of Hartford because they were playing in the NCAA tournament. Athletics, when done right, is a major driver to your university. And now you are cutting it to the bone that they're not doing it right, obviously, because they don't value it like they should. But it will do a few things to the overall athletics landscape. First off, it's going to take the America East back to nine teams. Okay, it's going to make take the America East back to nine teams, which makes an odd number of teams, at least in men's basketball, which impacts your championship structure. It can be gotten around. They did it forever, but it's an annoyance. So I don't know how they handle that. Do they recruit another 10th team? Who would that be? Is it a team that drops down? Is it a team that moves up? I don't know, but there are certainly um, you know, now questions about the structure of your league with an odd number of teams, guys, give me a little, give me, give me a little uh, number here. Number two. Okay, number two. What it does, 
this is going to make Hartford a doormat now for the rest of their tenure in Division One. New recruits aren't coming in under this news. There's no way. If I'm a coach, by the way, I'm leaving. If I'm currently there, I transfer. Like, if I'm a non-senior, I transfer. And if I'm a recruit, I'm not even looking there. So you're not getting new good players. Your existing good players are leaving. And a lot of your coaches are probably going to leave. Hartford's even said they're not even offering scholarships beginning in two years. So current players leave, current coaches leave, new players stop coming in, no scholarships. They're going to be horrible. Like, you just went to the NCAA tournament. Hello to 3-27 and two years later. So UVM is going to have some easier wins here in a lot of sports starting very soon. Number three. Number three, it makes the America East now much worse as a league. Like, again, Hartford's going to start going 3-27. and So I look at this from a men's basketball-specific point of view. If you're someone who hopes that UVM can get a 12 seed instead of a 14, that's, that's probably done now. The league rankings, the RPI, the net rankings, they're all going down now. With Hartford being as bad as they are and some other, you know, Maine being as bad as it is, now the whole league takes a massive hit and UVM's chances of looking good are just, they're, they're non-existent. So UVM, you know, using the league, strength of the league to its advantage, if they could ever do that, they really can't now. Number four. Number four, Hartford is now going to be left with Division One facilities in a D3 landscape. So if I were a D3 school in Connecticut, I'd be worried about their ability to just gobble up recruits because what they lack in the ability to recruit in D1, they're going to get in D3. So if I'm Trinity College or uh, Wesleyan or uh, Albertus Magnus, like if I'm any of those schools in Connecticut trying to recruit athletes, I'm very fearful now of Hartford and because they're going to come in, they're going to gobble up recruits because of their weight room and track and, and baseball field and basketball court and facility. I mean, they're going to have a distinct advantage now in Division Three. So that's going to be bad if you are a local team there um, in Connecticut. But we don't have a number five, I don't think. So number five. The question I always get with UVM, I get this every couple of weeks. Should UVM move leagues? And I always say no. I always laugh it off. And I know I'm being a prisoner of the moment, but today I'm more interested in UVM moving leagues than ever before. I'm more interested in than ever before. Because if the league is going downhill, you've now got an iffy NJIT program in there. You've got a Patsy in Hartford. I'm now today more likely to entertain it than I ever have before. I just that I mean that's just the reality of it. It's still I'm sure not the smart thing to do. Financially, it is, you know, hard to do. It's very hard to move leagues, right? Extra travel, extra league costs, extra. You know, it just, it's very difficult to move leagues. But and as a prisoner in the moment today, I'm the most disenfranchised with the America East that I've ever been before. If there was ever a day you could convince me to have UVM move leagues, this would be the day. This would be the day. I, all in all, it's not a good idea. But today, Brady Farkas thinks it's a good idea because it's just embarrassing as to what Hartford is doing. A move to Division Three will allow the university to further strengthen the academic, co-curricular, and wellness experience for all students. That's what the board chair, David Gordon, said. That guy needs to be laughed at. Okay, AKA, we're going to be cheap as hell. Our university is clearly floundering because we don't know how to run it. <clears throat> and we're hurting... You know, 
athletics is the one driver that a lot of schools can have and the one way a lot of schools can get exposure. If you do it right, it can be used to your advantage. And Hartford clearly doesn't know how to do that. So UVM's I wouldn't be shocked if they beat Hartford next year, 80 to 37 in men's basketball, because it's just absolutely ridiculous what Hartford is doing with this decision. All right, it's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Let's get to who's saying what. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? I don't I don't like the signing. I'm not happy about the signing. Okay. I think about 99.5 of New England is upset with this news today. All right. They really said that? That's the issue for me, is that he is limited physically. In a vacuum, Cam Newton's shoulder is what it is. His body is what it is. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, I love when really smart people, I love when really smart people say the same things that I have said and validate my opinion, okay? We talked yesterday about the Mike Clay chart, Mike Clay from ESPN, who said that the Patriots have the 21st best roster in the NFL Well, he's got the Patriots incredibly deficient at wide receiver, right? Well, not only does he have them as deficient, he's got them as the second worst group of wide receivers in the NFL behind only the Lions. He's got the Patriots as the second worst group of collective wide receivers in the NFL only in front of the Lions. And that continues to prove my point. This team, the New England Patriots, needed to draft a wide receiver high up in the draft. They could have gotten one in the second, and they took Christian Barmore. They could have gotten one in the third, but instead they took Ronnie uh, Perkins, and they waited until the seventh round. Phil Perry, NBC Sports Boston, thinks that methodology was a mistake. To me, you're pretty set in your front seven, and the one area where I think you still need some help is that receiver. And, uh, and if it's not receiver, it's corner for the future, or it's tackle for the future. And there are players at all three of those positions still there at 96 that I think would have helped them, if not right away. Those are things that I said, right? I said if they were going to draft like they, the two positions of need, they needed a DB, right? They've got Gilmore under contract for only a year, J.C. Jackson only for a year. I seem to forget about Jalen Mills, who they have, but he's not really a true cover corner. He's another secondary piece, but he's not a, not a cover corner. They needed a DB, and more than anything, they needed a wideout. And Phil Perry there tells you, I was surprised to see them address the front seven because what they needed was a wide out. Okay, they needed a wide out. They need somebody who can get down the field. Okay, they need someone who can get. Look, I think the Pats' overall offensive strategy this year, I think it'll look a lot like last year in ways. I think they'll run the football, but I think they'll utilize the tight ends. They'll take some shots and play action. Okay. A wide receiver is not the most important position to them, but they needed one, and they needed a good one. They needed a playmaker on the outside that could help you stretch the field, that could win at the line of scrimmage, that could go and be a target in the red zone, that could win on a crucial third and nine. Jacoby Myers is great on third and four. Somebody who can win on third and long, who you can throw the ball up to or can run past guys. They need someone who can win one-on-one matchups. They needed, You know what? They needed multiple wide receivers, not just one. And certainly not one in just the seventh round. And Adam Kaufman of WBZ News Radio in Boston said, you know what? Yeah, they did need wideouts. I don't feel like they have that clear-cut number one thousand-yard threat receiver, unless, of course, Cam Newton's, you know, on-field chemistry with 
Jacoby Myers sort of lends him to become that guy. I don't view Bourne as that guy. I don't view Aguilar as that guy. And, you know, the list goes on. I certainly, you know, we have no reason to view Nikhil Harry right now as that guy. Uh, You know, Edelman, if healthy, could have been. This team, you know, when you lose Edelman, that is a big, um, that's a big deal. Because Myers we like, Aguilar, Bourne are useful, and, and Harry, I at least am still intrigued by. They need somebody else there. I mean, look at the impact wideouts that have been gotten, you know, in the last couple of years. DK Metcalf, second round, Terry McLaurin, second round. They absolutely could have gotten a big play wideout to help give another layer, another dimension to that offense. They're going to be good in the run game. They're going to be good in the quarterback run game. They're going to be good in the intermediate part of the passing game. Good at the tight end. I think they'll be good at play action. They need one more layer to the defense, and that's a or layer to the offense. It's a deep threat. I got to go deep across the middle. I got to win on the outside. I got to win in the red zone. They needed to have taken a wide receiver. And I love when smart people. Um, I love when smart people agree with me. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVRadio.com. Okay, Red Sox and Orioles set to play today. It's the first of four between the Sox and O's, and we are joined now for the second interview of the day by Kevin Brown, one of the uh, many voices of the Baltimore Orioles. Welcome back in, everybody. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on a Friday on WDEV, AM and FM at WDEVradio.com. Red Sox open up a new series with the Orioles this weekend, a four-game set after uh, the Sox took two of three from the lowly Detroit Tigers. Joining us now is one of the voices of the Baltimore Orioles. It's Kevin Brown. Kevin, what's up, man? How are you? I'm just glad you didn't say the lowly Baltimore Orioles, Brady. Things are looking up in Burnland. Yeah, you know, the Orioles are hovering around 500. They're, they're, you know, fewer than five games out of first right now here as we're into May. So things are better for the Orioles than they've been. Yeah, it's been uh, a pretty fun start to the year. Obviously, we're a couple of days out from John Means throwing the Orioles' first no-hitter in 30 years, first solo no-hitter in 52. So that is the big headline. But it has been... I think a more compelling team than a lot of folks, you know, in and out of Baltimore expected. And there are quite a few bright spots. Um, I mean, Trey Mancini having returned from cancer and starting to look like the Trey Mancini he was at the end of 2019 again is a great story in and of itself. But there are some others, and it's been really a fun team, kind of a plucky team. And, I mean, they've played well against – bunch of teams with winning records so far red sox yankees just won a road trip at oakland and seattle two teams that are off to really good starts so it's been a lot of fun and and i you know i i think understandably this is one of the more surprising teams in the game right now who is cedric mullins at the top of the order because this guy just keeps hitting yeah he (laughs) he's a 26 year old former switch hitter it's a great story. So Cedric Mullins, two years ago, was the Orioles' opening day center fielder. He had come up in 2018. I think he's listed at 5'9". When you're listed at 5'9", <laughs> it usually means you're 5'8". Yeah. But he's a smaller guy uh, from Campbell University, You know, not a renowned baseball school. And he came up at the end of 2018, and it looked like maybe he'd be the center fielder of the future to replace Adam Jones. And in 2019, he could not hit. He looked like he had the confidence of, of me going into a major league game. He was six for 64. It got so bad, he was sent all the way down 
after struggling in AAA to AA Bowie. And it seemed at the time like his career was basically over. Well, last year, he found his way back up to the big leagues. He played well. He played in 48 games. He was about a league average hitter, all things considered. I think he had nine bunt hits, which were more than I believe any other team in baseball. Wow. Um, but he still struggled as a right-handed batter. He was a switch hitter, and he just was not a, a capable hitter against lefties. So this year, he came to the Orioles and said, I want to give up switch hitting. I want to go back to what I used to do in high school, which is just being a left-handed only batter. And the results, Brady, have, have shocked me and everybody else, probably who's not named Cedric Mullins. And maybe even Cedric himself would tell you I didn't expect this. He is coming into this series 18 for 47 against lefties. He's got hmm. two home runs out of his five against lefties. And this is as a left-on-left -left batter. Um, his first couple of years against left-handers as a right-handed batter, I think he was 14 for 95. He already has more hits than that and half the at-bats. So it's been amazing to see. He's always been a great defensive outfielder. He's one of the fastest players yeah. in baseball, and now he has turned into a machine at the top of the order. Um, it's a testament to confidence, a guy that basically everybody in the organization had seemingly given up on, never – you know, never wavered, really, never lost the belief that, that he could get back and be a good major league player. And he's honestly played like an all-star. You know, you mentioned John Means, who throws a no-hitter the other day against Seattle. And that's not just a one-off for him. He's really good. And he beat the Red Sox and shut them down on opening day as part of that three-game sweep at the beginning of the season. John Means is not just the best pitcher on a bad team. John Means is a legitimate ace, I think. What makes him so good? His changeup mainly, it's a really, really good changeup. His arm action is so tough to pick up, I think. You know, the way hitters swing, they, they swing like they don't know if it's going to be a fastball or a changeup. Mm -hmm. He's incorporated as the last couple of years have gone on, a slider and a curveball more. But it's mainly the separation between the fastball and the changeup. It's not a changeup with a crazy amount of movement. It's not Steven Strasburg's changeup, right? But it, it has just enough, and the location – is is so key. He really works it down in the zone. In the no-hitter, which I think is the best pitched game in the history of the franchise, mm. he threw 26 first pitch strikes to 27 batters. That's oh. that's unheard of. I, I mean, literally, I think Brad Radke in the last 20, 25, something like that years is the only one to throw a higher percentage. I think he was 27 out of 28, a star for the Twins. But John throws strikes. He locates. He was not a hard thrower ever coming up. Another unheralded guy, 11th round pick out of West Virginia, which is not a great baseball school, had previously gone to junior college. Mm. And he worked his way slowly up through the minors. He was an all-star two years ago, but it was, you know, it was a surprising all-star pick. It was on a pretty bad Orioles team. He didn't even pitch in the all-star game. He had a good year, but there were some underlying numbers to make you think, all right, this was kind of a fluky year. And then last year, he came into the season throwing 96. He was throwing mm. four miles per hour harder than we'd seen, and it blew everybody away. But he couldn't locate. Yeah, He amped up his velocity, and he could not locate. He also was dealing with some personal issues. His dad had uh, had cancer for a year and passed away yeah. last season. So his season started terribly, personal reasons, couldn't command. And then about midway through the short season last year, something clicked. He took some miles per hour off, 
He was still throwing harder than he had been previously, but not as hard as he was at the start of the year. That allowed him to command his pitches better again. And since the end of 2020, you know, in an Orioles season nobody was paying attention to, um, he's reinvented himself to become one of the best pitchers in baseball. A little bit of extra velocity, but not as much. His command is back to where it is. And that fastball change of combination just works really, really well. It's fun to just watch him pitch as opposed to just mm-hmm. throw and, you know, locate and get ahead in the count. So we're talking with Kevin Brown, Orioles broadcaster right here on the Brady Farkas show on WDEV. I was all pumped to ask you, what was it like to call a no hitter? What was it like to call a no hitter? You evidently were not on the call for that game. No, um, not only was I not on the call, Brady, I was uh, largely indisposed. I got my second COVID vaccine shot on Tuesday which is wonderful. I feel great now. Um, Highly recommend it. Go get vaccinated. Unfortunately, on Wednesday, the side effects hit me fairly hard, as they tend to do with a lot of folks. So I took a midday nap from about, I don't know. um, I'm trying to think of when the Orioles game started. It it was at 3.40 Eastern. Yeah, so I probably got up after an hour and a half, two hours of sleep, I, I mm. woke up and, and the game was at, uh, done with six innings. Mm. So I hadn't checked the game before I started my nap. <laughs> and I woke up, I opened my phone. Let's see what's going on. Oh, John Means has a no-header going through six innings and 67 <laughs> pitches. So um, I did watch the final three innings while trying not to fall back asleep. Mm. Um, amazingly cool for... Our TV and radio crews, of course, you know, selfishly would would have loved to have that experience. But um, I I have been lucky enough. I've called between minor league baseball and college ball. I've called five no hitters. So wow. I have I have called no hitters before for and against my teams. And listen, the way John Means pitched, I think he's got another one coming mm-hmm. up in the next few years. So I I fully expect him to uh, to give me one one of these seasons. You are a young guy. We met like six years ago in Albany, New York, as you were doing Division One hockey playoffs for ESPN or ESPNU, I believe, at the time. Yep. And, and I thought to myself, you were a young guy then. Like, you probably would have only been like 24 at most at that point. Like, how did, how did you get the job to be a voice of a team? And are you even 30 yet? I am 31, but okay. thank you for asking. I, I, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> Use some great facial moisturizer that's good that's important for 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 people who do i'm sure you're a radio guy but i'm sure you do some tv appearances somewhere so you got to have the face very important um you know i a lot of good fortune honestly (laughs) i mean i'm not naive like some of this is is skill obviously i have confidence in myself and what i can do but i came out of college and there was a triple a baseball team in syracuse still is syracuse mets now where the syracuse chiefs they had a job opening and I didn't graduate early. I just happened to be there the year they had a job opening. In. Xander Bogarts played his 1,000th career game as a member of the Red Sox. It's hard to believe that Xander Bogarts has been around that long. I mean, Xander Bogarts is still a young guy. Xander Bogarts is 28 years old. He will play this entire season at 28 years old. He has been here since 2013 in the playoffs, and he's been a starter essentially since... 2000 and yeah, 2014 played 144 games. I mean, Xander Bogarts is a stud and Xander Bogarts is the face of the Red Sox as far as I'm concerned. And it's really not even close. Okay. The Red Sox have a lot of good players. Chris Sale when he's healthy, 
Eduardo Rodriguez, Alex Verdugo, J.D. Martinez. It's not even close to me that it's Xander Bogarts. He is the face of the Boston Red Sox. I saw some stuff recently from Barstool Sports who said they thought Verdugo was the face of the Red Sox. It's not Alex Verdugo. As great as he is, as much energy as he brings, Xander Bogarts is their best overall player. He's consistent. He's their leader in that sixth inning today, um, in which you know he walks to load the bases, stays disciplined, takes the walk, loads the bases, and then he eggs Rafael Devers on and rallies him, and then Devers brings in two runs with a single, and Bogarts goes right back over to Devers during the pitching change to give him some love. Xander Bogarts is the leader of this team. He is the best overall player on this team, and he created a couple of those 24 highlights that we were sent. Here's the 0-2. Swing and a little looper into shallow center field, racing in on it at Jones. He will not get there. J.D. comes home. It's another two-strike hit for Bogarts, and it's 5-4 Red Sox. The plate coverage from Xander Bogarts is just insane. Xander Bogarts has unbelievable plate coverage, plays very good defense, runs well, hits for power, leading the American League in hits. So Xander Bogarts certainly is the face of the Red Sox. A couple of other things here, guys. Give me, give me the numbers. Number two. Number two on my takeaway from today. Um, Kike Hernandez was removed from this game in the first inning with a right hamstring, with right hamstring tightness. He doubled off the wall to start the game, advanced to third, and then left the game. And it's disappointing to see Hernandez leave on a couple of different levels. One, you don't want to see anybody hurt. Two, the Red Sox have been pretty healthy this season for its entirety, at least as the position players go, they've been pretty darn healthy. In the last few days, a couple of things have crept up, okay? Verdugo sat out yesterday with a stiff back. Christian Arroyo wasn't in the lineup today. They didn't even want to use him. They ended up playing at the very end, but after he had been hit, they didn't want to use him. You saw Bogart, speaking of him, foul a ball off his leg, and I thought maybe he was going to have to leave in the fourth inning. That was scary. And... You don't want Hernandez to be hurt, and you don't want Hernandez to miss any kind of real time because he's been the primary leadoff hitter for this team, and you don't really want to screw with the structure of the lineup if you can avoid it. I mean, Hernandez has been, you know, I know he's hitting about 230, but you've had great comfort from Verdugo in the two-hole, Martinez at three, Bogart seven. I don't want to start screwing with this lineup. The lineup has been the thing that has been predominantly really good for this team throughout the year, and I don't. If Hernandez were to miss time, and now I got to put Verdugo at leadoff, and I'm sliding everybody. That's not something that I really want to do. So uh, hopefully Hernandez is able to come back, able to play tomorrow or soon after there as the Sox start their series with the Orioles. Guys, number three. Number three. I really am shocked at the sloppiness of this game. I call it horrifically beautiful, but the sloppiness on defense, the sloppiness, you know, Taylor not covering first base, Nathan Evaldi. The sloppiness in his game as well. I really thought that it was a lock that Evaldi was going to come out and dominate today. The Tigers are awful offensively. They Listen, entering this series, the Tigers averaged 2.7 runs per game, the fewest by any team through 29 games since 2014. They scored more than 20 runs in this series. Okay, They averaged 2.7 a game. They averaged more than 6 in this series. I mean, I thought Ivaldi was going to absolutely shove in this series, or in this game, rather, and he wasn't able to do it. And the Tigers, they chased him early. He couldn't even qualify to get the win. He didn't even go five innings. It goes beyond him, though. 
Again, Josh Taylor not covering first base. We saw Matt Andrees balk in the eighth, and that run came around to score. Devers had a couple of errors. And by the way, the Tigers stole seven runs in this series. Is that what it is? Seven runs in this series, the Tigers. or I'm sorry, seven bases in this series. They stole seven bases in this series. That's unbelievable. I mean, 